We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Your host is Dr. Ted O'Connell, family physician, educator, and author of many well-known medical textbooks. He also founded the nation's first fellowship to formally combine community medicine and global health. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. As a reminder, this is a rapidly evolving topic, so anything that we're talking about today may change in the days and weeks and months ahead. My guest today is Dr. Todd Grande. Dr. Grande is an associate professor at Wilmington University. He has an active clinical practice as a mental health counselor focusing on survivors of abuse and recovery. He received his undergraduate degree in psychology from Excelsior College a master's degree in community counseling from Wilmington University, and a PhD in counselor education and supervision from Regent University. Dr. Grande has an active YouTube presence covering topics such as mental health, human behavior, psychopathology, personality theory, research, statistics, appraisal, and group counseling. Todd, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell the audience about yourself? Thanks for having me, Dr. O'Connell. Yeah, just say that I'm very pleased to be here. I know this uh, coronavirus causes a lot of stress. There's a lot of mental health concern around it. So I'm just so happy to have a voice in this discussion and try to educate the public in a way that makes sense. Well, you're the first mental health professional that we've had on this podcast. So I think your perspective is really going to bring a lot of value to our listeners especially as anxiety kind of ramps up over this pandemic and now people are being spending a lot of time in their homes and that can have a certain effect on the psyche. You have a very active YouTube channel with almost 220,000 subscribers when I last looked this morning. Can you tell us a bit more about the topics of, that you cover on your channel, the origins of your channel, and how you try to approach these topics? Sure. So I started the channel about uh, five years ago, a little bit more than five years ago. And I wanted to be a platform where my students in the clinical mental health counseling program could access videos. So it was never really intended to kind of be a significant YouTube channel. I really didn't even know what a subscriber was at that time. I didn't know that zero moved to any other number. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I started uploading videos. And of course, the students were watching them. And then other people started watching them and making comments. I did that for several years. I added counseling role plays, a few lectures, and a lot on stats and working with Excel and really just managing data. And then in like the fall of 17, I started with more of what the channel looks like now, like psychopathology, personality disorders, case studies, movie critiques, and uh, critiques of TV shows and YouTube videos, true crime. And it's kind of just evolved from that, just kind of more of that content and reading a lot of literature and trying to get good information out there. Can you give our listeners a little bit of a taste of how you might approach a case study or a movie critique or a television critique? Like you, you can choose one or give us an example of all three, just so we get a kind of an idea about what you're doing on your channel. Absolutely. So using like a case study as an example, 
you see these case studies published in the scientific literature. There are probably thousands of them. I've read, it seems like hundreds. And, you know, I'll look through a few and try to find one that I think really touches on different issues that are important at the time, like with personality disorders or maybe OCD or something that that might be a hot topic now with the concern about the virus. And I'll, and I'll go through the case study and kind of give a summary of what we saw in the article. And then either as I go along, I'll kind of offer my analysis, or sometimes I'll kind of wait to the end and put my analysis together. Usually it's a little bit of both. And just trying to apply what we know from other literature and from my experience to that particular case. What did the clinician do right? What did they do wrong? What did we see that was maybe very expected in the client? What was unusual? What would I have done? You know, kind of just giving an alternate perspective. Not that the clinician is necessarily wrong, but just my approach to it. What might have changed? So a lot of these case studies come from the 90s or the early part of the millennium. So what new techniques have been developed or what new circumstances might occur? Uh, like the other day, I was doing a video on OCD and, or no, a video on hoarding, hoarding disorder. And they were taking Polaroid pictures of things that they're throwing away for the client. Well, these days that would probably be like a cell phone. It'd be a lot easier, you know? So just right. things that people might not expect that would change over time. And pretty much the same strategy with like movies or TV shows maybe they're kind of including the impact that those products, that type of media has on society as well. So if you look at something like the movie Sybil with dissociative identity disorder, even though I never reviewed the movie, I reviewed the book, that had a significant impact on the DSM. At least that's one of the theories that that influenced the DID being included in uh, DSM-3 in 1980. And for our audience, DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that is used to diagnose psychiatric disorders. Is that right? Yes, it's uh, created by psychiatrists and used by mental health professionals of all types, including counselors like me. So it, it's become a fairly important document. The companion to it for a lot of countries in Europe would be the ICD-11, uh, which is actually largely similar in terms of the actual categories. But yeah, it's, um, in my opinion, it's pretty good. It's, it's pretty well put together. A lot of people are critical of it, but I find it to be fairly useful for categorizing symptoms. Right. Um, some of the content on your YouTube channel is now available in podcast format as a true crime series. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and, and where they can find the podcast? Absolutely. So a number of videos that I have on YouTube have been kind of converted over to podcast format. And there's a specific format I have on YouTube, which occurs once in a while in my production list, which is a true crime. So maybe Ted Bundy or Eileen Warnus or um, Jeffrey Dahmer, people like that, kind of looking at these cases. And some of the time on these cases, there's actually a lot of mental health information available because some of the records are public. I remember for the Casey Anthony case, reading what had to have been 200 pages of of mental health evaluation. <laughs> it's a lot there. So just a, a rich data source that you know people who watched the trial or people saw on the news probably wouldn't have known about and, and necessarily yeah. know, you know, what's going on there. So so those are those are being converted over. I think there are several available. And that's at arslonga.media. That's where um, they're being hosted. 
right in the in the title of it, where they can also find it over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and the major podcasting services? Yes, it's Psychology and True Crime. Great. We'll put that in the show notes and just make sure that it's super clear where people can find it. I've taken a listen to them. They're very, very well done. Super interesting um, analysis of some real um, highly publicized crime. So Todd, as a mental health professional, I imagine you're interacting with clients and counselors uh, who have anxiety about, about the COVID-19 pandemic. Is, is that right? Yeah. So my clinical experience uh, at this point kind of in my career is mostly supervising practitioners, although I do see clients directly still. And what I like about supervising is in terms of perspective, you get a lot more because you're hearing about say, 20 or 30 clients from one supervisee instead of just the caseload that you're carrying personally. And of course, there's some shortcomings to it as well. I mean, you can't get in depth as much as you can with the client, but it does give me a lot of perspective and a lot of reach. And I can kind of hear about their stories and take the temperature, so to speak. And there is actually quite a bit of anxiety around a number of the areas with uh, coronavirus. How are you advising clients who are anxious about this? And how is your approach different than if you were treating anxiety not related to a pandemic like we're seeing now? Yes, this is interesting because what I've found about anxiety and for the most part OCD and depression is that when really stressful things happen, it may get exacerbated, but often it really doesn't. Because Individuals like that, especially with severe presentations, are already maxing out that scale, so to speak. Right? It's a, a statistical regression problem. They're at the, they're the top end of what can be measured. So for them, uh, the pandemic, in terms of looking at as from the point of view of the illness and the cognitive distortions, for them, it's just as bad as what happened before. It's not really necessarily any worse. So it's really just the topic of the day is what I found. So maybe a little more severe, but not like twice as bad, maybe 10% uh, more severe. And a lot of those problems related to challenges with work, like if somebody's in the restaurant business or some retail. So it's not even necessarily a fear of mortality or something like that. Now, in clients who do not have anxiety problems, so it's really kind of an acute distress. They come in with anxiety specific to the pandemic. I actually find it's a little easier to work with them because they don't have the underlying disorder, right? They don't have the tendency to experience anxiety. So it's really just kind of eroding at whatever neurotic features they may have in their personality and maybe some existential type stuff as well. So I find kind of for both groups, kind of looking at automatic thoughts, challenging cognitive distortions, trying to generate self-talk, how can they uh, give themselves kind of factual statements back to themselves that address the issue. And I think too, <clears throat> Unfortunately, with this particular pandemic, I think there has to be a degree of acceptance because there is a genuine reason to be somewhat concerned, particularly in the higher risk demographics. So I'd like to actually ask you two questions within what you were just talking about. The first is with the with the first group that you were talking about who already have the underlying anxiety disorder. Just to give an analogy for our listeners, would it be fair to say that it's already like having a stereo that's turned up to nine or nine and a half? Yeah, 
And with this, you're not really, you turn it up to 10 and it may not even be that much different. Is that a fair analogy to make? Yeah, they're already in the state as if the pandemic has been present for their whole life. So it's, okay. it's uh, uh, amazingly not that much of an adjustment when you're already worried about dying, or you're already worried about being sick, you're already worried about losing loved ones, losing your job, the economy crashing. To have something a little bit more legitimate threaten those aspects doesn't actually change the clinical picture as much as one might think. Right. Thank you for explaining that. And then you mentioned for your clients giving them self-talk strategies. Could you give us a, an example or two of what that might look like? So one of the theories behind why people have anxiety symptoms and a lot of symptoms is that thoughts combine with situations. And this leads to an immediate or relatively quick um, physiological response, affective response, like a feeling. And it's actually very hard to short shortcut the system. So like, for example, if your whole life you've had this belief that you're worthless and you go around with this vulnerability constantly and you get into a situation like say you're um, in high school or in college and you want to date and you approach somebody to ask them on a date and you get rejected. Well, rejection would hurt anyway, but now that's combining with the sense that you're already worthless in the first place. So it might create an automatic thought that says, I'm always going to be alone. Right. So it's a overgeneralization. It's a kind of a, a dramatic statement based on the evidence available. One rejection doesn't mean being alone forever. So what the self-talk does is the self-talk tries to disrupt that cycle from the back end. So a self-talk statement might be something like in that situation, being rejected is really painful, but it's likely I won't be rejected every time. You know, so it's a realistic statement. It's not a necessarily a positive statement, but it's a logically accurate statement that's we hope would kind of shortcut that automatic thought from popping into somebody's head. And then in the long run, we would hope that that would actually push up and eventually change the belief of being worthless. Great. Thank you for explaining that to us. I think for those of us who aren't mental health professionals, that gives us a little bit more kind of concrete understanding of, of what self-talk strategies look like. Um, Todd, what other types of mental health issues are you seeing right now? Well, it's interesting. We see a lot of anxiety, a lot of subclinical anxiety, so worry, nervousness, a ton of uncertainty. So a lot of clinicians kind of joke about like existential counseling isn't always helpful for every stage of life. Well, it's going to be helpful for a while now, right? We have a lot of people worried about what's going to be happening to them in terms of their lives or livelihood. So uncertainty is a, it's a big business now. I see depression, people kind of assuming the worst is going to happen. You know, like, so the difference, the distinction here, the distinction here would be if somebody's anxious, they're worried about what's going to happen. If somebody's depressed, they're assuming the worst will happen for certain. So it's almost like an acceptance of something very grim. OCD symptoms, which interestingly, even though they are destructive, especially obsessions, the particular compulsion of hand washing might not be so bad right this moment. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, let that one run loose a little bit, right? Um, right? And also seeing acute stress disorder, which is what post-traumatic stress disorder is before we have the time elapsed to diagnose it. And this is an interesting circumstance because typically uh, the clinical profession you know, of counseling is pretty protective 
of that diagnosis, right? We don't want that being thrown around kind of loosely, you know, like you trip outside and kind of fall on your knee. You don't have post-traumatic stress disorder from that, right? Right. You just have a hurt knee. And uh, at some point, you get back up and keep going. Yet if somebody has a close relative die or somebody's really seriously injured, we know they can develop these symptoms. What's tricky here, I think, in terms of, I think, challenging our whole profession to, to look at PTSD is that with the risk of coronavirus being, again, significant for some people, can that, in fact, be a qualifying trauma? Can that meet one of the symptom criteria we see for post-traumatic stress disorder? Because we are seeing some symptoms that seem to match the other components of the disorder, like hypervigilance, trouble sleeping, memory problems, uh, having uh, mood swings that, that don't really seem explained by other uh, pathology or other circumstances. So in a sense, uh, PTSD is having its own existential crisis, more like an identity crisis. Uh, if we're facing this pandemic for a long time, are we going to get significant post-traumatic stress from people just living with this risk? Right, right. Um, and then on the other side of this coin, do you have any thoughts on the people who perhaps aren't taking this seriously enough or aren't really thinking it through? You know, we see the news reports of the college students out on spring break saying they're not going to get it or not really worrying about who they might be spreading it to, or even people leaning into conspiracy theories that this is a virus. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Developed by the government or by a different government. Um, Do you have any thoughts on, on those groups? Yeah, so that's interesting. I think with the first group, with the uh, like the pictures of the beachgoers, you know, young people on the beach and spring break and all that. One of the, one of the problems with youth, uh, I found from my experience as a clinician, is uh, impulsivity and kind of lack of thinking through consequences, and it leads to uh, car accidents, it leads to fights, it leads to drug use, uh, and you know, addiction. A lot of problems. Impulsivity might actually be the worst trait that humans have from a mental health perspective. I'm, I'm becoming increasingly convinced of that throughout my career. It just leads to so many problems. And with this particular pandemic, if somebody is irresponsible and they transmit, you know, they encourage the spread of, of the pathogen, they may never know who they affected. They may never know right. who died potentially uh, from that or who got sick or who passed on to another person, and that person died. So one individual, you know, in these models where contagion spread, one individual can be very dangerous. One person making a bad decision can affect 50, 100 people down the line. So it's, uh, it's very reckless 
with, with that behavior. And uh, I'm not surprised by it at all. <laughs> because I think, I mean, it's not just isolated to, to young people, but I think it is relatively isolated to people that don't think things through. And I think this uh, pandemic requires that we take a moment and really assess our behavior. Now, in terms of the conspiracy theory, uh, I was just working on this earlier today. We see uh, a number of conspiracy theories about the pandemic, and it was inevitable. You know, as soon as we heard about it, we knew they were on the way. And what conspiracy theories really do, I think, is, there's actually a few parts to them, but what they do is they take circumstances that are not related to one another or are truly coincidental or random, and they connect them in ways that are sometimes delusional, and sometimes maybe subclinically delusional, but, but not logical either way. Mm-hmm. And when you focus in on that, that type of uh, coincidence, like, for example, Iran was, was struck pretty hard with the pandemic. They are under the effects right now. So a conspiracy theorist might say, and we've heard this, the United States created this virus to wipe out Iran. But what about Italy? What about the United States itself and China and all the other countries that uh, theoretically there would be no problem with that also have the pandemic? So it's excluding information that would serve to disprove the conspiracy. And the difficult part with it is, you know, in my experience, nothing actually disproves the conspiracy. Right? There's, there's no amount of information. There's no evidence that you can present where somebody will say, oh, you know what? I was wrong about that. It turns out that was probably generated an animal and then somebody ate the animal or whatever and they you know it came about naturally even if um government officials were to confess that they actually did create it conspiracy theorists would have another uh, conspiracy right ready to go (laughs) it would not satisfy them there's no relief when you're a conspiracy theorist this actually sounds like a super interesting topic that we could go down a rabbit hole about am i hearing that you're going to be having a YouTube video about this topic because I will be listening and watching. Yes, I do. I have uh, I have a few I've already done, and I have uh, one that I worked on today that I'll be releasing soon. And uh, I have a few just directly on conspiracy theories and also just on delusional thinking in general. Uh, but it it is quite actually uh, a fascinating topic. It's something that it's it's hard to imagine how people believe it. But then as you kind of dig into the different steps of how people form beliefs, it makes a lot of sense that they do. Right. Well, I'll take a look and a listen at that. Uh, it seems really interesting. Uh, for individuals with pre-existing mental health disorders, are you seeing a worsening of their symptoms or other effects as a result of this COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. Well, as I talked about before, if somebody has OCD or anxiety, they've already have a lot of concerns coming in. So the pandemic kind of is the topic of discussion, but doesn't necessarily, I think, cause a lot of change. Uh, one thing we can see, though, with people with pre-existing disorders like this is their stressors and their daily life are increasing. So even kind of aside from the disorder, they're having difficulties coping because anybody would. So I think there is a lot of that, especially the financial stressor, mm-hmm. uh, the concern like with, say, the family member who never washes their hands or never covers their mouth when they talk or sneeze or, or cough. Uh, that's, that's concerning. And I think it's sometimes hard to separate the pathology from just what would be considered normative. 
right? I mean, I would be upset too if somebody came in sneezing and not right. taking precautions. So, uh-huh. yeah. So there, again, there's a there's a genuine reason for some level of concern, and that that muddies the clinical picture sometimes from a mental health perspective. Got it. Um, Todd, there's a well-established connection between the mind and the body, and that we, we know that individuals with certain psychological problems or mental health issues may be more predisposed to physical problems and chronic medical conditions. Can you tell us a bit more about this phenomenon? Well, we've known for a long time that mental health distress in pretty much every form can have a direct consequence on physical health. It's actually pretty remarkable making people more susceptible to be ill, right? Making them more vulnerable uh, to develop a medical uh, condition, seemingly unrelated to their mental health condition. I think, too, that the mental health distress can distract people so they're not going to take proper precautions. They can overreact, and it can facilitate impulsivity, which I talked about before, which is extremely dangerous, especially now. Uh, because the cost of impulsivity has just gone up quite a bit. The uh, mental health distress can also interfere with the careful and measured evaluation of information. I find that particularly with uh, pathology that ramps up somebody's vigilance, like mania or anxiety, where they might consume information at a phenomenal rate and draw improper conclusions from it. And one of the things we've seen with the pandemic is the creation of a lot of noise, and the signal has become very small. So typically when you're anxious and worried and nervous and depressed, you have difficulty pulling signals out of noise anyway. And now the the ratio has just become more unfavorable. Mm, Interesting. Um, Since COVID-19 seems to be preferentially affecting older adults and those with chronic medical problems, what can we do to support people's mental health to minimize its effect on their physical health and their underlying chronic medical conditions? This is such a challenge right now. So like if you're looking at somebody who's under 70 and relatively healthy, statistically, they have a lot less to worry about. But when somebody is really at a markedly higher risk, for example, somebody over 80 with upper respiratory problems that have been severe in the past, it becomes very important that they diligently work to minimize their exposure risk. Right? It's, it's not like the fear is unfounded, like I mentioned. And this pressure can lead people to not be able to cope, right? to, to take inappropriate action. Uh, the stress can, can be too much. Right? The kind of the classic nervous breakdown can happen in a lot of forms. And we have seen situations where people have kind of given up. Like they've, they just assume that you know, if they're 20% at risk to die, if they get something, that's one in five chance. So they're just throwing caution to the wind and, and kind of being nihilistic. So I think it comes down to focusing on what you can do to protect yourself. Like there is something we can do. There is a path here. It's not ideal, <laughs> but it's, it's something we can actually act on and reduce the risk. And the other part I mentioned is uh, the acceptance of the risk that's there. In a sense, I mean, if somebody has faced death before, this pandemic isn't nearly as stressful for them. Mm-hmm. There's actually a, a piece uh, in, in almost having died that only somebody who goes through that really understands. Sometimes it actually causes more anxiety, but much of the time people become resistant to it. I think here too, it's important to keep in mind, just looking at the logic model, there is also a reason to be hopeful 
eventually this will end. Eventually there will be a vaccine. There may be even uh, some direct antiviral agents that can work with people who are already infected. You know, that, that's a possibility like we've seen before. So there's a lot of scientists and medical professionals of all types working on this. A lot of people put in the time and the hard work. So there is a reason to look to the future and say it will improve. Right. And we're certainly looking to that day. Uh, Todd, what are your thoughts about potential long-term psychological effects of a pandemic such as this, given the need for social distancing? We're seeing schools close, people are losing their jobs, the economy is struggling. So how does, how does that affect people long-term? So this, this pandemic is so awful for so many reasons. I think, uh, of course, mainly the loss of life, the mortality is what everybody looks to. But kind of moving down the list, this has really affected the way we socialize in the short term. And I already think people were too isolated when this started, right? So my, my concern is that when this genuinely ends, there's going to be a reluctance to socialize. Maybe some of the good habits can be retained. That can be a, a nice feature like the hand washing. That's useful even when there's not a coronavirus loose. But I think that um, there may be some habits to develop where people get just accustomed, you know, a new way of life, especially if this drags on for a year or, or 18 months or something like that. And you know, we rely on technology, and technology is wonderful, but I don't think we we're really designed to be isolated. And I think that's going to have some consequences down the road. I think as well, people are going to be more afraid when they do see pathology, when they see somebody who's sick or coughing, and they're going to become kind of avoided, like they could be the next one to start the pandemic. Uh, it's actually a specific uh, virus that causes this. It's not uh, a series of them. You know, it's the I think it's the COV SARS two, right? Uh, so. You know, it's one specific uh, creature, uh, for lack of better words, that causes this. It's not every illness that can turn into a pandemic. But sometimes, again, uh, the logical thought kind of gets put aside when people have been through really terrible traumatic experiences. Right. And what I'm hearing you say within that is we are all social beings kind of by nature, and we're being asked to go against our nature and do the social distancing and stay within our homes as much as possible. And going against our nature just is, you know, to put it simplistically, difficult psychologically on us. Yeah, it, it causes, I think what it normally causes is anxiety and stress. But over time, people can become accustomed. They can adapt. And we know from like prisoners in solitary confinement who adapt to that. It's a healthy adaptation in the sense that it helps them cope. But it's very unhealthy in terms of their ability to socialize again. Now, that's an extreme example you know, being in a cell for, say, five or 10 years. But to a lesser extent, people can get used to activities that don't involve human contact and maybe even start to enjoy them. And in a sense, we want that because we want people to be comfortable for the next period of time. But in another sense, we really don't want that. <laughs> right. right. It's we, really we want elasticity. sword, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we want elasticity. We want them to, to adjust quite a bit right now, but then bounce all the way back and be social. And I'm not sure that's completely realistic. So Todd, I don't know if mental health in children is is in your wheelhouse, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. Are there concerns about the effect of these school closures on children and anxiety about the pandemic amongst children and how that's going to affect them in the long term? Yeah, so this is this is interesting. I think there's a few directions this can go depending on the individual child somebody is dealing with. So children are very good at picking up when things aren't going right. And parents are very bad about hiding the same information. So this causes them stress and they need reassurance in a realistic way. 
And fortunately, this is fairly easy for parents to provide if parents have the stability and their own assurance level high enough to do that. Uh, so the difficulty we see is that some parents blur that boundary and they start to involve the child in their own mental health care. Like they want the child to make them feel better. And that's a, that's a dangerous behavior without a pandemic. But pulling a child into your own worry actually makes both people worse off. So in a sense, um, you know, we normally say kind of be open with emotions, but this is a time to be very careful about how you appear around children. They can be disrupted pretty easily. And I think you can express worry to them without going overboard and, and introducing a lot of uncertainty. Another thing I think is that uh, you can create a positive memory from this, right? So uh, children like routines. So the routine can be established and that can be maintained. And it can be a time of you know, survival and scariness, but also a little adventure. And they're out of school and most kids are okay with being out of school for at least a short time. <laughs> so, you know, you can capitalize on that. Uh, but again, it's about, uh, it's about knowing when you're, you're in a good place to talk with a child and when you're not, right? So that's, that's a challenging thing. Being a parent is actually not particularly easy. It's made out like an easy job, but um, a parent who has several children through this pandemic and they're, they're worried themselves, they're worried that their children could be affected, you know, maybe not so much by the virus because they seem to be somewhat uh, resistant to it, but the financial impact or the loss of relatives or whatever, it's tough to know exactly what to say. Right. Right. I almost wish I had led with that question because part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is provide a really credible source of knowledge so that people can find some calm amidst the, this crisis and emphasizing the idea of preparedness through it. And, and what you bring up there is positivity and a chance for parents to approach the situation in a certain way so that children can come out with some positive memories of it. And, and I, I really like where you went with that. Um, Todd, those are the questions that I have for you for today. Um, I think your expertise here has been really outstanding and, and eye-opening to me personally to kind of think about these things a little bit differently. Is there anything else that you wanted to add for our listeners or anything that I didn't ask you that you would have liked to have been able to um, communicate? Sure. Yeah. Only really one key thing, which is as people kind of go through this stressful time, uh, I would expect a degree of pain. I would expect ups and downs, expect things to go wrong, even though eventually I think they'll go right. And with a lot of the states, we see kind of a relaxation of some of the rules on like telehealth. So and it affects counselors as well. So getting counseling services oddly, is now easier than ever <laughs> because of those rules being relaxed and uh, something uh, like a platform similar to Skype where you can communicate face-to-face -face with a counselor without introducing any risk in terms of the virus. I think it's a, a great time. I mean, some people are going to have some time on their hands, so it might be good to engage in that counseling and get tips in terms of what they can do to stay productive and to kind of follow the rules to protect everybody and all these different stressors that we see happening. So the counseling services are still available and it's it's a it's a great time to be a consumer of those services with things kind of changing rapidly. Right. That's a that's a really great perspective. Todd, I want to thank you for your time and joining us on this podcast and sharing your expertise and and giving people a way to kind of think about this and and frame our current situation. I think you've really brought a lot of value to the audience. So thank you very much. Please stay safe during this uh, pandemic, and I hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thanks so much.
That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.